Hello everyone and uh, welcome to this week's episode of Rethink Energy where I, Bogdan Avramita, will be your host. I am the editor of Rethink Energy and joining me today are Connor Watts, our energy storage specialist. Hello. And all the way from Australia, Andres Wontonor, our solar expert. Hello there. In today's episode, we will take a look at how the projected solar installation will have a knock-on effect on the global silver demand, why the oil giants will perhaps unwillingly be the cause of why green hydrogen will happen, and finally, we will talk about another poor decision made by the UK regarding climate change. First, we will ask Andres to give his opinion on what is the link between silver and solar panels. This week, I, I tried to write an article about how there's going to be a disastrous uh, silver shortage because of the solar industry switching to Topcon and especially heterojunction. I tried to write that, but as I checked and went through the statistics, I actually came to the opposite conclusion that solar won't grow too much beyond its current share of global silver demand, which is around 12%. Because while they are switching to more silver intensive types of, of, of solar cell, and while the size of the industry is going to triple over uh, over the next you know, by 2030, so that sounds very very bad. That sounds like you could suddenly have the solar industry go from 10% to 50% of global solar demand, and it's just uh, horrible because supply has been stable for a decade. But what I instead found is that probably the trend which has prevailed for the past eight years, or really probably forever, uh, will continue in which the intensity of silver use per watt. Uh, keeps going down a lot. And so I was quite disappointed. I was very excited thinking that I could write about a disaster and a supply chain crunch because uh, people love that. Journalists love it when things go wrong. The good news is I, I went through all the numbers. There's a lot of numbers in this article and it explains why. And uh, one, of, one of the things is that they can just switch to uh, copper electroplating. Um, and I believe that really gets rid of a huge amount of, of silver paste use. I wrote about that back in June as well. Uh, and there's other there's other there's various other techniques that they can expand upon or introduce to to reduce how much silver is needed. So realistically, how much further can silver usage be reduced? Do you mention that the overlying trend has been that the silver paste usage per watt has been decreasing over time with increasing solar deployment, meaning that solar well, meaning that silver demand from the solar industry has remained relatively flat, correct? Uh, yeah, if you look at the uh, Silver Institute, which is a global in, uh, association, they show a, a remarkable flatness of uh, silver demand from the solar industry. It has increased in the past year. Uh, by uh, Let me actually open their graph and have a look. It did increase in 2022 by about 25% uh, from 2021. So that is quite a lot. But if you consider that the actual manufacturing of solar increased by 50%, then the 25% increase from the Silver Institute uh, doesn't look so big at all. Well, I do believe that you're saying the solar deployments and solar manufacturing will increase threefold until 2030. Yes. So the proportional reduction in silver usage is going to need to be quite outsized if it's going to lead to um, the maintained percentage of the silver demand. Yeah, because it absolutely because because right now the heterojunction is something like fifty uh, percent to a hundred percent more silver intensive, depending on which uh, which figures you look at, and they change all the time. Which actually is is part of the is because they are constantly reducing. Now let me just pull up the right figures. 
So we've already seen, we've actually already seen since about 2014, solar manufacturing increase uh, several times over already. It's uh, increased by six times through to 2022. Uh, and in that same period, the silver demand from the solar industry was pretty much flat. It was at 93 million ounces back in 2016. And then in 2021, it was only 110 million. But of course, the manufacturing was several times bigger in that period. You said a six times increase from 2014 manufacturing levels, and then another three times increase from current levels up until 2030. That's a hockey stick kind of graph. Yes, yes. But I'm saying that the, the uh, so far, it has mostly been kept under control. And on balance, I think they will continue to do that. And I think it will be a bit like the crucible shortage that I wrote about and the high priority quartz uh, shortage for the Tchaikovsky process. It's a bit hard to, don't quote me on, well, do, don't quote me too closely on this, but it's a bit hard to follow the pricing of the crucibles very closely because the, the reporting is a bit sparse. But what seems to have happened is that it came up to the level where you could, where it was worth it to supply uh, with silicon quartz, uh, with synthetic quartz. So suddenly the, the, the solar industry can call on that and the price can't go up too much uh, because it's reached the, the level at which a new supply uh, type is, is valid. And, and by so what's the trade-off in the case of silver paste? Well, I'm not sure because it's terribly complicated and there's about five different methods that I mentioned in this article that they can use. So it's a bit it's a bit more subtle than that. You know, it's all kinds of things that will now be worth adopting, worth investing in that weren't before. And another example would be polysilicon. So for quite a long time, the thickness of a, of a wafer was 175 uh, microns. Suddenly, uh, in about two years, they go down to 150 microns. Uh, suddenly, they realize they can do that when it's uh, $40 per kilogram. And now that the price has come back down, uh, they, they don't need to make it thicker again. It's just a permanent thing. I mean, this is very reminiscent of um, a research piece that is on, on platinum catalysts in, um, used in electrolyzers and fuel cells. Essentially, what that piece uh, was saying is that the demand on platinum will increase in the short term, but at the same time, the industry is putting in a lot of efforts to either make electrolyzers more efficient in the sense of they will use less uh, platinum per kilowatt, and at the same time, there's new companies and new technologies appearing that will completely avoid the reliance on rarer metals like platinum and iridium. So there's, there's kind of a two forces at play at the same time, very opposite forces, but they, they come one after the other. So the demand of platinum increases, which is going to spike up its price, and then efficiency gains and new technology is going to come in and then they will um, shrink it back down. Uh, so do you think this, this sort of thing will, will be similar to what silver will, will, uh, will see with regards to the solar industry? Yeah, I should I should uh, temper my sort of optimism, or, or to put it another way, disappointment that things are boring and not disastrous. Uh, a little bit. I mean, so, things like that take a while, right? Yeah, exactly. And all that. Exactly. I think there will, in fact, uh, be a shortage um, for a few years. Quite how severe it is, I'm not sure, because if you look at the silver price history, um, it was at fifteen dollars per per ounce from like uh, 2015 to 2020, pretty stably. Then after the pandemic, it jumped to twenty five dollars per ounce. And so I think it will grow. So it's only it's only up by what? Uh, what is that? That's actually sixty uh, percent. But it's a kind of stable up sixty percent. And now with both EVs, uh, they're apparently also a major source of uh, demand that's growing. Um, not quite as big as solar, I don't think, um, in absolute terms. No, it's trace amounts in certain components. But perhaps in terms of uh, the growth, the extra demand, it might be quite big. So I think silver will increase, but it won't be something cataclysmic. 
and it will last, you know, a few years. And... Have you looked into why it is that silver supply has remained relatively constant over the years? Obviously, it's not a base metal. It is a precious metal that is primarily going to be used in things like the jewellery sector and, and in electronics in small amounts. But it seems a little bit odd that global supply has, has been totally flat over the years. I think that might be something to look into. I mean, platinum was platinum was the same, to be honest, because I think it currently feeds a lot of industries that have matured, so there's just small fluctuations, kind of reached a balance. I feel like it's probably the same for silver. If you again look at the Silver Institute's uh, data, they have demand and supply very, very stable at pretty much a billion uh, ounces each right through from 2014 to 2021. And then in uh, 2022, suddenly uh, you get another 200 million ounces. So you're going from 1 billion to 1.2 billion in one year. Now, as we, as you can tell me more than I can tell you, uh, mining is has a fairly long lead time. What is it typically? It, uh, it depends on the project, obviously, but it's like, um, it also depends on where it is that you're getting certain minerals. So Bodan could tell you about iridium and how that's not a primary supply thing. You're not mining for iridium, you're mining for platinum. You just get a very, very yeah, small amount that's of iridium with that. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. So it's a secondary output. In the case of something like cobalt, increasingly that's a secondary output from nickel mining. And does that mean but that the, uh, the the lead time is not in the mining? It's actually I'd in have the to look more about extraction so, no, facilities. No. What I'm saying is, it's more about it's more about the type of mineral, and I'd have to do a little bit more research on it because I've not had a reason to go into silver as of yet. Or you could do that and come back to us. And, uh, <laughs> it's just unusual that it's remained totally flat and now has a significant peak from this industry that isn't being addressed relatively quickly because people should see this coming. It's a uh, you can only reduce silver based usage so much in the in the creation of solar panels, and depending on the routes to reducing the silver paste consumption per watt, that may be incredibly doable and it may be like entirely replaceable, or it might, and you'd have to tell me on this, only really be reducible to a functional amount. Andres, what's, um, what's recycling like when it comes to solar panels? Can this be recycled? Oh, the silver paste from solar panels? Well... It mm-hmm. is a fairly a point, significant part of the cost structure of a heterojunction cell. Uh, but, you know, obviously you only want to, we're talking about a new generation of solar panels, a new type, this, the heterojunction. So obviously they're not going to be re- recycled for 20 or 30 years or more. Mm-hmm. So uh, the old, I mean, old solar panels, I, I'm sort of, they're so horrible to recycle that I, I don't even like to, to think about it. I mean, what are you getting? You're getting... Mm-hmm. Degraded silicon semiconductor, and you're getting like glass and aluminium. It's oh, I mean, people will do it, but so I don't really rate that very highly, um, actually. I see. So one to keep uh, to keep an eye on then. Yes, although it is interesting also that so far in the past few months that we've been uh, tracking all these uh, supply chain elements, their price silver paste has been pretty stable. I think it went up very slightly lately. So I think this is a story maybe that something almost happened. But a huge amount of effort was made by Chinese manufacturers to counterbalance it. But it might still happen in the future. That the yes, conclusion. yes, but it's it's still ongoing. Uh, I see. Okay, let's uh, let's move on, um, and now let's talk about. Uh, I wrote a story about green hydrogen. Surprise, surprise, and. Um, it was uh, revolving around Total Energies um, pledging that it well not pledging but essentially confirming that it will 
aim to use uh, 500,000 tons of green hydrogen per year from 2030 in order to, to decarbonize its um, oil refineries around Europe. And uh, according to some some numbers that will represent a 40% reduction in scope 1 and scope 2 emissions. And this kind of got me thinking because presently there's uh, about just under 100 million tons of hydrogen used every year dominantly by the oil refining industries and the fertilizer industries but predominantly by the old ones and uh, this got me thinking because um, all of the oil giants will essentially have to switch to green hydrogen to decarbonize those activities and then i just made some quick calculations and i included some learning curve assumptions so essentially learning curve means when a technology doubles in installed capacity its price falls by x percentage and this percentage varies between technologies. So solar is something like 20-something percent. Uh, onshore wind is like 14%. I think lithium ion is 18% or something like that. So it varies between 10 and 30%, I guess. And I made a nice graph in this article, which you can see on our website if you if you check the story out. If we assume that all this um, all the oil refineries will decarbonize, which they will have to by using green hydrogen, as they don't have another alternative, and that will drop the cost of electrolysis from, I assumed, $2,000 per kilowatt hour today, which is slightly on the expensive side, but just for the sake of the assumption. Even in the worst case that the learning curve is just 10%, this drops by half to about $1,000 per kilowatt hour, which is a significant drop in price, which will snowball into ensuring that the cost of green hydrogen. So um, my conclusion was this is that uh, it's fairly inevitable uh, for the price of green hydrogen to drop because of this, um, because of the oil refiners having to decarbonize. And this is essentially in light of, uh, you know, everybody just talking about how the price of green hydrogen will never come down. And I'm just pointing it out with this uh, logic uh, that it most certainly will because of the oil giants, which is a tad ironic given that uh, they want to sell, keep on selling gas and uh, oil forever. Uh, what do you guys think of this? Well, you mentioned there was certainly an irony there of just, <laughs> you know, the oil giants working to replace themselves and making their competitor more efficient through, um, well, so this is, so what's the catalyst here for the oil giants to be investing significantly in hydrogen production to decarbonize their operations? It's effectively just policy, right? Yeah, it's policy and... Um... Uh, probably so carbon EPA tax in Europe as well. Sure, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, they will have to decarbonize their um, upstream. And obviously, they know they can't decarbonize their <laughs> downstream applications because you keep burning. Uh, if you keep burning fossil fuels, you still get carbon emissions. But they will have to decarbonize their operations, and this is the only thing that will get them there. And by doing this, they wow. will essentially facilitate green hydrogen to a drop in price. Well, that's why you're seeing the reductions in the scope one and two emissions, but not scope three emissions. Exactly. <laughs> the product here is, you know, you, you can't save oil from being a polluting factor and the being a No, uh, but this is, yeah, this is going to essentially come back and... And essentially bite them because uh, if they if they would have it their way, the old giants, um, and we've been talking about this for a long, long time, 
uh, one of Peter's favorite subjects to talk about um, is that if you know if they would have they would all keep on selling oil and, and gas forever um, and essentially by doing this they are accelerating green hydrogen which will then come for that oil and gas um, and essentially replace a huge chunk of it I'm sure they'd rather continue to use, um, you know, their own feedstock to feed their operations. But I mm -hmm. think this is down to just the proper enforcement of policies that continued, uh, uh, the continued tightening of things like EPA emissions. And yeah, I mean, look, in the energy sector, policies and governments uh, they are often, very often, the catalyst for for a lot of things. And then, Connor, I think you wrote this week about the UK taking a, another step in the wrong direction perhaps when it comes to catalyzing any sort of behavioral change when it comes to the climate. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah, so yesterday and the day before, it was only rumored to have been announced that the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was going to water down the um, country's zero emission vehicle mandate, which would see it would see a ban on the sale of new internal combustion engine passenger vehicles. And this has now since, uh, I believe, late yesterday or early this morning, um, been confirmed that this has been put through effectively. It will be his intent to get that through Parliament. I'm not entirely sure on the exact process that will be required, but he has a parliamentary majority, even if he didn't get that himself. But straight too far into politics here. So that's been delayed by five years. So now the ban will be 2035. He is also planning on watering down the the limiting of new gas boilers, which would have seen significant investment in, in heat pump manufacturing infrastructure. It's genuinely quite impressive how he managed to anger everyone, from the climate activists to the automotive industry, with a single, well, with maybe four sentences. I mean, who's at fault here? Is it the, the lobbyists that keep whispering stuff in, in his ear? That's it. It's not the automotive lobby that's doing this. <laughs> so Ford has been very outspoken and saying, do not do this. Just They've just said, just leave this alone. They specifically requested consistency, stability, and something else from the government in the policy background that the UK is going to be functioning under. Because when you're designing a vehicle, when you're doing that sort of thing, it takes years. It takes the better part of a decade to plan through your product launches and to get your technology within regulation. And if that regulation is changing on a whim every other year, you can't plan that. What was the figure for developing a new car? Was it £100 million or something like that? I'm not entirely certain. But what I'm saying is... What I'm saying this is, this isn't the automotive lobby, the oil lobby, maybe, but even then, the UK's decisions with regards to this aren't going to be um, solitary. Now, Connor, what will this um, what will this do to investors looking at investing in UK uh, green ventures? Because if well, the policy, if the policy environment is. Uh, is unsettling, then surely every, everybody would just be fenced off. Well, that's been the case for the last few years, basically ever since 2016, and realistically mm. before that as well. But it just completely undermines the UK's position on 
kind of the climate side of things. It undermines the UK's position on things like business security, something the Conservatives proud themselves on saying that they're, you know, the party of, despite random decisions like this that come out of narrowly maintaining a local election seat <laughs> that completely changed the party's green policy agenda. It's just mind-boggling how how unstable the UK is and feels. So you just have this... You have a man who seemingly doesn't want to use power to enforce policies and to actually make change, but then also like is hell-bent on retaining that authority. Connor, when's the next, uh, when's the next uh, election? At the latest, early 2025. Well, that's a long time away. There's plenty of time for, uh, for Rishi to keep on uh, angering people, isn't it? On the plus side, during, um, the, during the kind of news cycle around this over the last couple of days, there has been indications from some Conservative MPs about a potential vote of no confidence which would see the Prime Minister removed, but at the same time, this would be the third Prime Minister removed from a vote of no confidence during the same Parliament, so from the same election. Yeah. Because just in case um, others aren't familiar with how UK politics work, you elect a government, not a Prime Minister. The government in power can replace Prime Ministers basically on a cycle. They could have a new one every day if you wanted. It would just be insane and utterly chaotic. This would mean that there would need to be a new Prime Minister, the fourth in, I want to say three years. Yeah, about that. Maybe even two years. I don't remember. But regardless, this is just, it's another really bad look for the UK. He specifically said, and this is the quote that really riles me up, that Looking at the UK's historical action on climate change and, and and the progress we've made, we want to slow down, as if that makes any sense at all. We see the progress we've made, now we want to undo it. That's not what he said, but that's what I heard. He's just... Uh... Yeah, I mean, this is clearly not a time to slow down for any government, especially one as... Uh, rather, for any economy, especially one as, uh, as big as the UK's. Uh, the claim was that... He wants to push through the climate agenda proportionately. But again, he just, considering this is somebody who used to work for Goldman Sachs, he fails to understand that investment comes in a stable policy environment and you can coax businesses towards doing what is good for society through policy. I guess what's good for society isn't exactly taught at Goldman Sachs, but never mind. The idea that that doing this proportionately isn't because what this does is it brings us out of line with the rest of Europe. Europe as a whole has the, well, still has the ban on ice vehicles at 2030. There was a little bit of um, complaint and lobbying going on from some of the more niche car manufacturers like Porsche to include um and so effectively not banning internal combustion engine vehicles, but requiring them to run on zero or very, very low carbon fuels. But their ban is still in place for 2030. Most countries are looking like it will be before that in Europe. So the large European economies, Germany, France, the UK as well, is looking to already be beating that target and hitting 100% of new vehicle sales being electric by 2029, 2030. 
But this just kind of takes the foot off the gas, quite literally. Yeah, I mean, this is not this is not doing any good to um, to UK's uh, wind capacity target for 2030, which now is looking increasingly uh, harder and harder to hit in the current uh, political environment. And it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better, at least until 2025. Is all of this actually a significant blow to EVs and, and renewables, or is it more of a blow to the UK's renewable industry? Well, it's a bit of both. Like It's, it's a, a blow, blow to the UK's to... economy. Hmm. Well, yes, but all of the above wasn't an option there, if you said mm-hmm. at all. But it's just... It's been a while since I've seen a policy decision this destructive that has just been allowed through, for one. There is no rationale behind it. This is just a knee-jerk reaction to the results of a local election that has convinced Rishi Sunak that his party needs to go anti-green agenda and to slow things down, despite it being one of the most popular bipartisan issues in the UK. Both sides of the political spectrum in the UK broadly believe that climate change is going to be a significant problem. And most most parties, most people in the UK believe that we need to support our automotive industry. And we do that by providing a stable policy environment and not changing in instrumental policy on a whim. On the whim of one man who has a tendency to overreact and underdeliver. And you wouldn't expect a, a, a politician to be aware of what the price of an EV is today compared to 12 months ago, compared <laughs> to 12 months before that. Like, just how fast is uh, it? Who was it that was asked the price of a loaf of bread? Well, yes, it's that too. That was, uh, yeah. And, well, for that point, I'll just lead back to one of Peter saying, like, none of these people have science degrees. They don't look at the maths. They go by feeling and what they think will be popular, despite being in the most enclosed and very much despite being in their own walled garden of opinion yeah well that seems that seems like a good note to end on um thank you everybody for listening um you can find all the stories discussed today and uh a couple more as part of our weekly publication that is up on our website uh rethinkresearch.biz uh you'll have the option to subscribe to the newsletter there so you can you can get notifications about the publication which comes, which comes out every Wednesday and this podcast which comes out every Friday. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye for now.